morning will be from Matthew 28:18 through 20. Again, that's Matthew 28:18 through 20. <clears throat> and it reads, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may not be seated. Well, it's always a privilege for me to be with you and to be a part of this very fine congregation and its worship. And I always enjoy the beautiful singing that we have together for the times that we observe the Lord's Supper together every first day of the week for the opportunity that we have to give of our means. What a blessing that is. The opportunity to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. What a great joy that is. And I always look forward to that opportunity when I'm with you at Broadway. I'm very happy that uh, we're able to be together. I look forward to being with you tonight if you're visiting with us. I'm very happy that you're here. I hope you come back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock. And I want to talk about the city of Bethlehem tonight. Uh, we had the opportunity to visit parts of, the, of Israel. And I'd like to talk about Bethlehem tonight. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, histor historicity of the city. But I don't want to leave it there. I want to talk about what it means for us today and the significance of it. So I hope you'll be with us tonight as we continue our discussions about Israel, Palestine, and the regions, uh, regions around that. And I look forward to that discussion. And uh, we'll do that this evening if we can. Thank you for reading that wonderful passage out of Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. What a great passage that is, really. The marching orders of the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, the parallel to that is also found for us in Mark chapter 16. And I'll turn to that and read it just very briefly here this morning. And I'll read just the short section there of it. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, verse 14 says, as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And then there's another passage that comes to my mind that I'd like to read. It comes to us in Acts chapter 2, and we refer to it quite often. And we do so because it's such a precisely stated statement from inspired Scripture with regard to our responsibility before God. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And you're very familiar with it. I know you are. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the question that I pose before us on the graphic is, but why? Now, 
I already know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh no, oh no. Not another sermon on baptism again. No, please no. You're already thinking that. Some of you are thinking, well, I heard this when I was a young person, a child. I bought into it then. I don't need to hear it now. I can go on to other things. Some of you perhaps are thinking, I heard this discussed when I was a child and I didn't buy it then and I'm not going to buy it now. I really need to listen to something else. Surely, you're not going to talk about that today. Bear with me. Be patient with me and listen for a minute. Because I want to discover from the pages of the Bible the great blessings that are to be found in this. It's not only a matter that the Bible teaches that I must be baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. But when I begin to look at the pages of the Bible and I learn more about this matter, I see that there are great blessings to be found in this particular matter, and they're connected with this act of faith the Bible calls baptism. And so I thought, well, I'll just tell you what they are. It is baptism that connects me to the grace of God. And what a blessing that is. And words are not sufficient for me to be able to explain to you the wonderful grace of God. But I'll do my best today to try to show two things. How great grace is. And how that's connected to when I was baptized into Christ. And I want to talk about the church of God, the church that belongs to God, the people of God. How important the church of God was to God. As it was in the mind of God before the world ever began, Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the blessings that we have in the church of the living God. And that is connected to the fact that I was baptized into Christ. And I want to tell you something all of us need, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Because I'll tell you what, I was a sinner one time. And I received forgiveness. And I'm grateful for that. And that's connected to the point in which I was baptized into Christ. So before you decide in your mind, oh no, oh no, not again. Let's see what the Bible says about it. And the great blessings that are to be found in Christ Jesus. Well, let's talk about the grace of God. I'll turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a remarkable uh, passage of Scripture here in Romans chapter 6. In fact, it really is amazing in that he answers a very difficult question by the time you get to chapter 3. How is it that the holiness of God and the perfect nature of God can be reconciled with sinful man? And the latter portion of chapter 3 is it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that that can happen because God's justice is satisfied and God's love is satisfied. And the only way that that could have happened is through a perfect sacrifice, that being Jesus. He goes into chapter 4 and he talks about justification by faith, which is a great heart 
of this book of the Bible, the book of Romans, that I'm looked upon as being right before God because of my obedient faith and God's amazing grace. And he uses Abraham as a great example there, that he was justified before God because of his obedience. And he comes in Romans chapter 5, and he says in chapter 5, Now therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because of him. We are justified by faith, and we have signed a peace treaty. And now we're no longer at odds with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And he comes to chapter 6. That every child of God needs to study carefully and come to know and understand. And one of the first things he deals with in very typical rabbinical fashion is the idea, well, if this is true, then why don't we just keep on sinning and sinning and sinning so that grace may keep going and going and going. And Paul, in the very beginning of that discussion, says, absolutely not. We're dead to sin. We no longer have any life with regard to this matter of sin. And he goes in chapter 6 and verse 1 and he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he says, absolutely not. Then jump on down to verse 7. I'm trying to understand this sixth chapter. For he who has died is freed from sin. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he's talking about the grace of God. In chapter 6, verse 7, he's talking about being freed from sin. What do you have in the middle? Reference after reference after reference of me being baptized into Christ. Reference after reference of me being baptized and putting on Christ and thus receiving the grace of God. And because of that, receiving forgiveness of sin. May it never be, verse 2 says, how shall we who were dead to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus have put on baptism, have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, verse 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father... So we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And now the point in verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. When I was baptized into Christ, it was a type of burial. Just as Jesus was buried in the earth and was raised from the dead on the third day, I went down into the water in a burial-type fashion. I was overwhelmed by the water, which is the meaning of the term baptism. And then I came up out of the water, which is like a resurrection. And when I come out of that water, I came to a new life. The old kind of life was put away The new life is now set before me. I've been freed from my sins. I received at that instance the grace of God, verse 1. And I am freed from my sin, verse 7. And the reason that I enjoy the grace of God today 
is because of being baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. When I think about being baptized, I think about the grace of God because that's when I reach God's grace when I'm baptized into Christ. But the blessing doesn't stop there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20 and verse 32, the Apostle Paul is traveling to Jerusalem. And as he does, he takes time out to visit with the elders at Miletus. And what a wonderful discussion he has with them there. And at the conclusion of that discussion, which we enjoy studying and we consider it very carefully, you find verse 32. And notice how he phrases it in his farewell statement. And now I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, sanctified means to be set apart and set aside for the purpose for which God had in mind. He said, now, I want to commend you to the word of his grace. The word of his grace is the inspired word of God. I commend you to the inspired Word of God, which is an act of grace upon God's part. And if it weren't for that inspired Word, I'd never know anything about being baptized into Christ. I'd never know anything about the connection which baptism has with the grace of God. And that it is at that point in time when I was in the water, totally submerged in water, and I came up out of that water, that now I'm the recipient of the grace of God. And it's a message of grace. It's a word of grace. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, I gave you a little preview of what he's talking about in that paragraph already. And there in that particular instance, he's talking about how can sinful man and righteous God come back together again. And he tells us how that is resolved. God's character is not compromised. His justice is maintained. His love is maintained. And that Christ, the perfect sacrifice, satisfied the debt which man was in. Now man can be counted as being justified. But notice what he says in chapter 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now justification is described as a gift of His grace. Being made right before God and being looked upon as being righteous, though I'm still a guilty, sinful person, God views me as being justified before Him and in His sight. That act, that moment is described as a gift of grace. That gift of grace would never have been realized if I'd never been baptized into Christ. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Of all the books in the pages of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians talks about the greatness of the church, how important the church really is, a point that we'll spend more time with in a moment. And this particular passage, verse 8, talking about the grace of God, is such a, a wonderful, marvelous passage, but yet it is so misunderstood because it's looked at through sectarian filtered eyes and through sectarian glasses. And for that reason, it's misunderstood. It's a very plain passage. 
The great point begins up earlier in the chapter when he starts talking about the mercy of God. But I want to give special emphasis to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I have been saved. I have forgiveness. I have salvation from past sins. And it's all because of the grace of God. It's not because I've earned anything. I haven't earned it. It's not because I deserve it. I surely do not deserve it. There was nothing that I could do all by myself in order to obtain this salvation. But because of God's wonderful grace, He made it possible for me to have forgiveness of sin by my faithful obedience to the divine mandates. But yet that's implied in the passage as well, verse 8. I'm saved by grace, that's God's part, through faith, that's my part, my responsibility to respond to the gospel of Christ. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd never have salvation. Nobody would be saved. But I connect with that. I get that. I receive that upon being baptized into Christ. You see, baptism is connected to the grace of Christ. Turn with me to the great book of Hebrews. And here you have Jewish Christians who are running the risk of falling away and losing their faith. And you come to about Hebrews chapter 4, which he talks about the wonderful rest that God has in store for the people of God. And as you look at this particular passage, you see Hebrews chapter 4 and about verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of God, so that we may, have, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, the Bible passage that I read for you is Hebrews chapter 4 and the verse of verse 16. But what is he talking about in the passage other than supplication and prayer? Now, because I'm a child of God, I have the blessing of prayer and supplication. And I can confidently go before the throne of God and express my heart's desire to Him because of the grace which I receive. And it's described as that. I can receive mercy and grace in time of need. And when did that opportunity take place for me? That opportunity took place for me when I was baptized into Jesus Christ. It's described as receiving grace and mercy. Now prior to that I was outside of Christ and didn't have the blessings of Christ and didn't have the blessing of prayer but now that I'm in Christ because of my obedience to the gospel of Jesus by being baptized for the remission of sins I've received this wonderful blessing. Now brethren I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to describe how important it is that God wants to hear His people in prayer and that we offer our prayers from the depth of our heart to God. And how important that matter is that I'm able to pray to God with love in my heart and devotion and dedication to Him, pouring my heart out to Him in the needful way. What a blessing. And that's connected to my being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about the problems of suffering and persecution. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's describing these particular matters of living life acceptably before God, even though we face such difficulties of life. And he comes to this matter of fellowship. And he develops that point for us in about verse 8, and I'll just read that for us and make the point. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. In other words, we're to have that kind of attitude about ourselves because we're now in fellowship one with another. And that's certainly what I received when I was baptized into Jesus Christ. I was baptized into the fellowship of the Lord's New Testament church. The Lord placed me there. So somebody may say, well, why bring this subject up again? Because... It's fundamental to the Bible, the word of grace, justification, being saved in the sight of God, salvation, supplication, Christian fellowship, which I would have none of that if I had never been immersed in water for the remission of my sins. It's not just a matter that the Bible says that I must be baptized. It is a matter that it connects me with the grace of God and the blessings that God has in store for me as a child of God. Now make no mistake about it, it is a command. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 48, Peter commanded the household of Cornelius to be baptized and that I need to be baptized for the remission of my sins. But I don't stop there just with a command. I grow in my understanding to realize how essential this particular matter is. And so I go away saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus talked about the fact of angels rejoicing over the fact that one comes forward to be obedient to the gospel of Christ, Luke 15 and verse 10. And I cannot help but think that that's much of the refrain that they are singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You've never had it until you've been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Because grace is connected to baptism. But grace is also connected to the church of the living God. And I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the verse that I have in mind is verse 13, and I'll spend just a few minutes talking about that particular passage. Here in chapter 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul is discussing this matter of miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, which was a part of the life of the church in the first century. It's not a part of our life today. The miraculous is not. We have the completed Word of God, the revelation of God, that I can go to the Bible, the Word of God, and study and learn what God wants me to do. Well, they didn't have it in the first century, and it was being given to them in piecemeal fashion. Revelation here and more revelation there as the church was ready to receive it. 1934, a journalist wrote a particular book, Don Markey was his name, and basically the thought of the book was about the problem of loneliness in America 
And the intent of the book went something like this, and I've tried to mark it down. I found it in my files. All religion, all life, all art, all expression comes down to this. The effect of the human soul to break through the barrier of loneliness. And through the course of his book, he was writing about loneliness and how difficult loneliness really is. And I suppose it's a word that touches all of us from time to time, being lonely. I suppose every one of us have been lonely. Sometimes people are lonely with regard to space. That is to say, they're all by themselves. There's nobody else out there. The soldier who's out there serving his country. It might be the sailor who's out there serving his country. They miss their families. They miss their loved one. Loneliness. It could be loneliness with regard to an isolation of spirit. I feel like I'm all by myself. And no one really cares for me. I don't seem to be important to anyone anymore. No one calls me. No one talks to me. I kind of chide my children that way. I talk to my children every day. And I call them and I'll say after a while, if I hadn't heard from them, I'll say, I'm, you know, this is your father calling, you know. Remember me? Uh, why don't you give me a call sometime? And leave that as a voice message. It's not long before I get a call. And I call poke fun at them a little bit. It's because I want to hear from them. And I want to talk to them. Loneliness is a devastating thing. Stories told of the woman who was an elderly lady all by herself. She felt lonely. She stayed up late at night simply to hear someone on the radio say, Now, have a pleasant good night. Sometimes we're that way. We feel so lonely. But as a child of God, I should never feel lonely. I'm part of a family. When I was baptized into Jesus Christ, I identified myself with a family. God put me in His family the people that belong to God. And even though I joke with my children and that kind of thing, I have a wonderful Christian family. I happen to have a wonderful physical family, but I have a wonderful Christian family. That even if it were the case that I didn't have any physical brother, sister, <clears throat> mother, father, son, or daughter, anyone in my immediate family, I'd still be a child of God. Now that's his point, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into a family. Let me read just a brief moment about that. It comes to us in verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one Spirit, all that simply means is we followed the instruction of the Word of God and we were baptized. The Word of God taught us to become Christians and we submitted to it and we became children of God. 
we became part of the body. Verse 14, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason, any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason, any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God hath placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Verse 18. Now, I love this passage of Scripture for a number of reasons. But the reason for the present is he's trying to tell us that every person in the body is important. And one part of the body cannot say, I'm more important than the other. Nor can a part of the body say, well, I'm so insignificant, I don't do much, I'm not an important part of the body. No one can have either one of those attitudes with regard to their membership in the body. Each of us are connected one to the other. If my little finger were to become cut and infected, it would send messages to my brain. And my brain would send messages to every member of my body to go to its rescue and to help it and to save it and to do whatever it needs to be done to comfort it and to make it more a part of the body. Because that's the way it's, the body's connected. And it's a wonderful metaphor to help us understand our relationship to Christ and our relationship to each other. And the point that he started out with in verse 12 is because it's be, we were baptized into Christ. Baptism connects me to the body. And there's no reason for loneliness. I'm a child of God. I'm a part of the family of Jesus Christ. And one should not look down upon the other. One should not feel inferior to the other. We're all a part of this wonderful body the Bible calls the church that belongs to Jesus. And all that was made possible because I was baptized into Christ. Baptism connects me to the church of the living God. Now I want to read this particular passage because it comes to my mind. Found for us 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the verse verse 15. And it contains one of my favorite phrases and words when I think about this subject. But in case I am delayed... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. It's the household. It's the family. A number of times the Bible describes it in just such a fashion that we're part of the church of the living God. And even though I'm a father and a husband, I'm also your brother. And even so, you're a husband or a mother or a wife. You're also my sister. Because we're part of this family. And what made that happen was me being baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. Baptism connects me to the grace of God. Baptism connects me to the church of the living God for which Jesus died. 
Now I want to emphasize the third point that I promised you this morning. And I'll go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want to notice verse 20 and 21. It's a great Bible passage, and I hope that you'll take time to study it. In this particular instance, he talks about Noah, and he talks about our salvation and the great flood of Noah's day. I read a book about the life of Chuck Yeager years ago. I was so impressed with his life, and I actually met a person that knew Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager was one of the great Americans who had always wanted to fly, and he's probably one of the greatest test pilots that we've ever had, breaking the sound barrier. And he's just a remarkable American and a remarkable thing that he's able to do. And I remember one of the things that he said in the book, whenever he went up to fly one of those new planes, test the plane out, before he did that, he wanted to know everything about that plane before he went up there. He wanted to know all the ins and outs of it. He wanted to know what it could do, what it could not do, because he made this statement. You're only going to make one mistake when you're up there flying a new plane. And that one mistake is going to be a devastating mistake. And it'll be the end of you. Well, I thought at the time, and I think about it today, that's not the way it is in life. I haven't made just one mistake. I make a bunch of them. You make one mistake after another mistake sometimes. And all those mistakes kind of come back on us and we reap what we sow. Sometimes the mistakes are called transgressions. Filth before God. Sometimes the mistakes are called iniquity. Kind of corruption. Sometimes the mistakes are called in the Bible sin. Failure. All these are hard words. Corruption. Filth. Failure. And we've done it so many times. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. I remember reading a book sometime. I can't remember the name of it. Menninger seems like to me he was the author of it. Whatever happened to sin? And the point of the book, though it's been a long time since I read the book, is that what used to be sin now is a mental illness. What used to be sin back then is now an incapacity or something like that. We sort of changed the terminology to try to cope, I guess, and make the activity more acceptable, more palatable, more agreeable. But God hasn't changed in His attitude of the filth and the corruption and the failure. And it's not just a matter of making a one-time mistake. We've done it over and over. Now I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And it helps me understand verse 20. Talking about the problems of Noah's day and the wickedness of mankind who once was disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. 
during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, now when Noah was saved by water, he said, that's sort of like what you're going through when you're baptized. And I thought, well, I thought the ark saved him. He was saved by means of that water. When God brought that great deluge upon the face of the earth, he cleansed and he purified the filth, and he got rid of the failure. And all of that was washed away. And that water took them to a new, clean world. They were in the ark because God had told them how to prepare that ark. And according to the pattern, Noah and his family built that ark and prepared the way. And when the great flood came, the filth and the corruption were washed away. And they were saved with, from that because they were in the ark. Peter saying, now the church of the Lord's the ark of safety. And you're going to be saved by means of that water. Oh, it's not the cleansing of the filth of the flesh. It's not a ceremonial type of cleansing. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It cleanses me on the inside. That great word, forgiveness, means I've got to do something in order to receive this gift. Sometimes it's referred to as redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, which certainly conveys the idea I was helpless in the matter. I I couldn't save myself. I needed God, and I needed God's help. But it's also in that passage described as a forgiveness whereby I am to obediently receive the gift of forgiveness. And I accept by means of obeying the divine mandates, God's divine commands, however we wish to say it, forgiveness when I comply. Baptism connects me to that. If it weren't for that baptism, I'd never have that forgiveness. Just like that, Peter said, like Noah was saved, you were saved. Noah was saved by water, you are saved by water. It's nothing magical about the water. It's not the water itself, but it's the means which God has chosen, whereby our souls are cleansed by the blood of Christ, and we contact the blood of Jesus, and now we receive what we need most, forgiveness of sin. The filth is gone. The corruption is gone. The failure is no longer in his divine mind or in his divine sight. Because I've been obedient to the gospel. Obeyed by means of being baptized into Christ. Baptism connects me to the grace of God. Baptism puts me into the church of the living God. Baptism gives me forgiveness. Not because I've deserved it. Not because I've earned it. Because of God's amazing grace, I've been given that as a gift because of faithful obedience to Him. One of the most remarkable men of all history, down on his knees praying in Damascus. He'd gone from Jerusalem up north to Syria, 150-mile travel. And I said to him, Saul, the Lord who has appeared unto thee in the way, has sent me so that I might receive thy sight, receive the Holy Spirit. Paul, recounting that great event, quotes Ananias as saying, 
why are you waiting? Arise, get up, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, and call on the name of the Lord. And I might ask you today, why are you waiting? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins and call on the name of the Lord by being obedient to Him and living the faithful Christian life. Will you not repent and be baptized today? Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.